I hope this works. Phil, have we lost you, Phil? There's silence. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Is Harry still there? I'm hearing Harry Fine. Harry Fine. That's the missing stooge, right? <laughs> Thanks, Harry. Thanks for your patience with this. This is like when they when you're trapped on an airplane, you they've arrived early and they uh, haven't got a jetway for you and it's been a long flight and you're just sitting there and they say, "Thank you for your patience." It's not patience. No, it's right. <laughs> it's captivity. <laughs> yes. Thank you for being a hostage. <laughs> All right, I I just started recording, so I'm going to do a countdown so you have something to sync with. Yeah. So 5 4 3 2 1 start. Good. Got it. Launch. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bott. Phil and Ted's guest today is comedy renaissance man Harry Shearer, who shares show business stories spanning his amazing career, from the credibility gap to Spinal Tap and from Saturday Night Live to The Simpsons. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Hi, Phil. Hi, Ted. How are you feeling today? I'm okay. How's the bunker? Oh, the bunker is, uh, uh, I just cleaned it. I hosed it down inside here, and I washed my hands afterwards. And so um, everything's looking spick and span. Here we are in a patchwork bunker-to-bunker Phil and Ted Sexy Boomer show, welcoming our special guest, Harry Shearer, calling from his bunker. Hello. How are you, Harry? Uh, I'm bunkerific. Wonderful. Now, you just, you made it back to the States from uh, Australia, where Judith was doing a tour, right? Yes, I was her uh, bass player du jour, or de nuit, and uh, we, uh, she had gigs, uh, first of all, at a, at a place that sounded so unutterably twee, uh, but it turned out to be quite fantastic, the Port Ferry Folk Festival. Oh, good heavens. Yeah, you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Port Ferry is a lovely little town of 3,000 uh, along the southern coast of Australia where, you know, if you mm. could see the next land uh, beyond the water, it would be Antarctica. Um, and wow. it's a festival that's been going on for 44 years, a town, as I say, of 3,000, an incredibly swell restaurant for dinner and a brilliant breakfast place. They make it a civilized endeavor. And three totally professional stages. And... Uh, Wow. And the best part of the story is it's all run by the town and all revenue goes to the town. No AEG, no uh, Live Nation. What a good idea. So she had she had two gigs there, and then uh, we went to uh, Melbourne, um, and we uh, she had a gig in Sydney on the Saturday night, and she did that at the Opera House, the smaller room in the Opera House, which was fantastic. Yep. And then I was supposed to be part of a uh, comedy benefit for the bushfire victims on the steps of the opera house they had just finished building the stage which faced the steps when they announced the cancellation of the benefit and then they canceled judith's uh, gig in melbourne and so we decided let's let's get out of here and Qantas parked 90 percent of its international fleet the next day this is fall now there right it is early it's late summer early fall yeah the fires are Oh, pretty much out now. Long, long over. They had a big, they they went through the California sh- uh, hustle, as I like to call it, which is they had the big fires and then they had the floods because the rains came. Wow. So now you decided to get back stateside, uh, given the pandemic, and was that difficult for you? 
Well, actually not. Uh, the flight was fine, and it was... We had seen the, the uh, pictures of O'Hare, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, these pictures of people coming yeah. back to the States, and it looked like, you know, any refugee yeah. picture anywhere in the world is just jammed together. A, a good place for the virus to uh, spread. And we thought, oh, God, that's what we're in for. And it turned out that LAX was the fastest we've ever gone through an international airport anywhere. Wow. You're spending time in New Orleans, chiefly also London and and here in Los Angeles. And you were thinking about going over to New Orleans as soon as you got back, but then you had second thoughts, right? Well, basically, it was as simple as uh, we'd just been on a flight and the idea of getting on another plane was uh, not that appealing. And then, of course, as the situation in New Orleans unfolded, it just seemed uh, wiser. Our situation in L.A. is such that... Uh, there's nothing. There's nobody to avoid where we are. It's it's basically self isolation is the way we always live when we come to L.A. <laughs> so we live in the same neighborhood, and uh, I know your salvation is the beach. Mine is the bike path. It's all closed now because the county of Los Angeles has shut it down because too many people were coming out there on the weekends uh, as if nothing was going on. So they've shut everything down. You know, the the there is a little. Uh, patch of green between where we are and uh, the ocean. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were guys out there yesterday boxing. <laughs> boxing. This reminds me of what it used to be in the 90s before the first big tech bubble. Yes. Yeah. I mean, th this, what LA looks like right now in terms of, uh, I haven't been into the city, but uh, just as looking at the sky uh, reminds me of when I was growing up here in terms of every day it's uh, clear and sunny and you know, given the time of year, it's a little brisk. But aside from that, you know, and China, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, air pollution was way down. And as soon as they started op opening back up to uh, get people to work after the first wave, before the second wave started, uh, air pollution went back up. So, you know, uh, if, if, if you want to be uh, like we were in the 60s about stuff, uh, this is nature's message to us. Stop doing what you've been doing. Look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a, a natural pause button that's been struck, mm -hmm. and I, I, an environmentalist scientist dream. Uh, you know what a fantasy they would say. God, if we could just shut everybody down for a week or two, just to see what the results would be as a control a baseline. Yeah, well, well now they have it. Yeah, the, the amazing thing is that the response of the environment is at every bit as uh, surprisingly quick as the response of the virus. Mm -hmm. Interesting thought. Mm -hmm. Phil and I have been talking about it too. Is like There are some upsides to this mm -hmm. uh, terrible situation. And one is an opportunity to stop, reconsider uh, a runaway situation that we're dealing with environmentally. Mm -hmm. And I heard on your show last Sunday, you were talking about microplastics going to be booming because of the uh, mask production, which uses those types of plastics. Mm -hmm. the, phrase, the phrase is melt-blown fabrics. <laughs> yes, melt blown. And there's a Chinese mogul of melt blown plastics who's now seen competition for the first time. Yeah, it's been pretty sweet for him thus far. Yes, and the fact is now, a year from now, we're going to be hearing about all the additional microplastics that ended up in the ocean because of this upsurge in plastic production. Have you thought at all about possibly some of the opportunities this situation is presenting us as a society as far as um, what we could do, how quickly the earth responds? Um, mainly, I had a, a sketch on my show about a, a, the first startup to come out of this situation, which is a, a service that uh, 
since the only way you're allowed out of your house uh, in most places is if you're walking your dog, what do you do if you don't have a dog? They come bring you a dog. Hey, everybody. It's another time at bat for The Entrepod, the podcast for would-be entrepreneurs and people who want to be one. And uh, we got a new sponsor today, the guys at Sheetheads who say, what good is the best mattress in the world if you don't cover it with the world's best sheets? And I almost forgot to not introduce myself. I'm Adam Buckholz. I'm not recording this as usual in my parents' living room. Uh, because it's uh, now their office or their workplace or something. So I'm in the Buckholtz garage, squeezed in between the Honda and uh, the vintage Plymouth Valiant uh, up on blocks. But not on blocks, <laughs> at least I hope not, as my guest today. He's a creator of a startup so new, it doesn't even have its certificate of incorporation yet, which to me is like so cool. Beggy, you've hit the marketplace like a Cat 5 tsunami with your idea. I mean... Uh, Everybody on my Slack is talking about it. Uh, it's pretty huge, all right, uh, Adam. And it's uh, it's just the result of sitting in the tub for a couple hours while I'm trapped in the house. <laughs> I guess we all know that one. Mm -hmm. I just asked myself, uh, people are being told to stay in the house mm -hmm. unless they have to go to the doctor or buy supplies or... Or not? Or unless they have to walk the dog. Yeah, I know. I used to have to walk Seinfeld when I was a kid. Which sounds cool, unless... What if you don't have a dog? What if you could order a dog via an app for your walk? Wow, an app? The dog is delivered to your house. You get to stay outside for up to an hour. The dog is picked up, rinse, and repeat. That's the whole idea behind Barks. With a Z. Oh, I love the Z. Yeah. So you're getting the, the dogs from like the, the pound, right? Adoption services, shelters, yeah, right? Yeah. They're relieved the dogs have something to do all day, although some of them, the older ones, uh, need a day of rest every once in a while from all the walking. And, and you're never going to run out of dogs. They're always saying how full the shelters are, although uh, we never found Seinfeld. Actually, in our first couple of markets, Sacramento and Portland, Oregon, we are beginning to see the bottom of the barrel of canine availability, so uh, we've set up a research lab. Oh, those are great. Uh, to work with uh, some robotics companies on prototyping a mechanical dog that at least walks like a real dog, you know, if this thing goes on as long as they say. That sounds exciting. Maybe down the road people would actually get the mechanical dogs as their pets. That would be a whole new disruptive. Well, then we'd start running out of those, too. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's why you're the startup guy, and I'm... The guy who interviews startup guys. You're essential, too. <laughs> so when does Barks break out to more cities? We're getting our angelfish round uh, funding this weekend, and then we go wide. And I'm trying to figure out what role do, do uh, algorithms play in all this? Best routes to take in dropping off and picking up the dogs. Sweet. Just one final question. Were your parents big hip-hop fans? No, I was a fat baby. Okay, so watch for Barks when it uh, goes live near you. And join me next time. Maybe I'll record in the driveway for another edition of the Entrepod. Till then, I'm Anna Buckholz saying my new sign-off, go start something. <laughs> so, so long. <laughs> Barks with a Z. Barks with a Z. Very catchy. And and listen, Harry, these days they could bring you a plastic dog. They're working on that, yes. <laughs> yeah, it would just excrete pellets <laughs> directly into the ocean, right? <laughs> Those would be the pellets that uh, 
dissolve the microplastics from the masks. Now you've got a system. <laughs> now you got a nice little circle going. Yeah. I'd like to, to talk a little bit about uh, your life, okay. Harry. Yeah. Here I am uh, on Benedict Canyon. And it was, your show's been on the air for, what, 17 years, since 1983, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but, of course, when we, we've been friends longer than that, mm -hmm. and we've been professional associates longer than that, because we go back to the very early days of the credibility gap yeah. on KRLA, right? Yes. And you've actually been in my house and have sat upstairs uh, in, in our living room, which is pretty much the same, you know, and, and so... It, to me, it's absolutely amazing after all these years that you have been so creative. You know, I mean, you, you do a show every week and it's always just full of inventive, creative ideas. Your music is amazing. I mean, you, you must feel in a... Okay, some of my friends are the Flying Caramazzo brothers, all right? They're jugglers. And they're great. Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah. And, and I've asked Paul, I said... After all these decades of juggling, what what does it feel like now? And he actually said to me, I'm still refining my technique. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what I, I get from, from you. I find you very, your career is very inspirational. And uh, I think out of all the people that I know who are very talented, you've been able to somehow exploit your your different talents in a very unique way. I'm sure some of it is luck, but a lot of it, I think, is sheer talent and the fact that you've always kind of gone your own way. Now, am I right about that? Uh, thanks for the compliments, Phil. Yeah, um, I, I've, uh, I'm going to quote, oh, uh, it may take too long to tell this story, but... Uh, we have nothing but time now, Harry. We have nothing but time. We did rule out your resume because we figured that would just take two hours alone. Yeah, no, that takes too long. <laughs> this is a story from my friend Paul Schaefer, and you'll see where it goes. It goes exactly to what your question was. Okay. Uh, Paul was working on a, a really horrible idea for a TV series called A Year at the Top, where uh, and it was a, a co-production of Norman Lear and Don Kirshner. Wow. And uh, the premise of it was these two kids wanted to become rock and roll stars, and the devil, they do a deal with the devil, they, they get a year as rock and roll stars, but of course the price is they've sold their soul to the devil. And the third member of the cast is Mickey Rooney, <laughs> who is playing, I'm trying to remember, he wasn't, he may have been playing, no, he wasn't playing the devil. Anyway, whatever he was playing. He, so Paul is on the set, they're rehearsing, and Mickey Rooney Jr. walks in, visiting his dad, and... Uh, so they have a conversation in front of everybody, apparently, and uh, Mickey Sr. is sort of uh, impatient with this. And what are you doing? What are you doing? What he, uh, Mickey Rooney Jr., I think, was wearing a, a buckskin fringe jacket, you know, like a cowboy. <laughs> he says, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Mickey Rooney Jr. says, Dad, I'm doing my own thing. And Mickey Rooney, at some high volume, I don't want to bust the limiter, says, yeah, yeah, you're doing your own thing. Your own broke thing. <laughs> and, and so, yes, Phil, I've been d doing it my own way, my own broke way. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you, you, broke, you broke away from the credibility gap at a certain point. No, I didn't right? break away and, from it. It broke away from me. They went and joined Laverne and Shirley. 
um, they were Lenny and Squiggy and Laverne and Shirley, and I was sitting oh, there going, that's right. what the hell happened to Tuesday? Um, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Got it. Woo. Yeah. Um, you must have a pretty good uh, setup down there in your home. Yeah. Do you use it for any other? Well, you must use it to make your records and stuff. But have you used it for any other unique purposes, any international purposes or anything? That sounds like you're fishing for porn. <laughs> Yeah, Phil, I I have this project I do for the Jap. You know, the Japanese have interesting fetishes. No, um, <laughs> seriously, uh, you know, I I was always kind of a tech head. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad had a tape recorder, reel to reel, and I got a bunch of kids together and we we made some sketches. Uh, I mean, I shudder to think what they sound like now, but. I mean, we were kids. What what did we know? But I, I learned to be... Hey, hey, Harry, they're all online now. Yeah. They're, they're all online. I was listening to them last night, you know, and they're illustrated, too. They've added <laughs> still pictures of you as you grow up. Oh, you haven't been there yet. Oh. I actually transferred a three-and-a-half-inch reel-to-reel that I found the day that my parents got us a reel-to-reel recorder. I was seven years old. Oh. And I just, I just digitized it. And my mom's forty, and I'm listening to my grandparents and my sister. It's it's uh, very very interesting to hear all that. Oh my God, how fortunate are you? I was I was I told somebody this last night. Um, I have, as uh, Phil probably knows, a huge collection of recordings, mainly video recordings of all sorts of people. Main a lot of them just waiting to go on television, and uh, and a lot of people talking and you know, various things. And I realized maybe two weeks after my mom passed, the only person I never got a tape recording of her talking was my mom. So I oh, wow. have to summon up her voice inside my head. But um, my point was that the, starting from when I got back into radio with the credibility gap, I was always, everybody else would leave after we finished the last show of the day. We did three shows a day. We must have been fools. And I would stay all night long, you know, fooling around in the studio, learning the studio, learning, you know, stuff to do in a real radio studio. Uh, that sounds weird to say, doesn't it now? Real radio studio? Yeah. yeah. So that's where that started. But I did the same thing, Harry. I would I would record funny pieces, usually by myself. Mm -hmm. But I also, I recorded uh, Bob and Ray oh. faithfully every day. Oh, no, right? me too. And yeah. Oh, good. And then I would edit them down. In fact, the the tape that I put together of what I call the best of Bob and Ray, which was when they broke one another up or they broke uh -huh. Peter Roberts up. Who was, <laughs> you're right. Uh, that that became part of Larry Joseph's collection ah. of Bob and Ray. Wow. I know. And and I used to also record Ernie Kovacs oh. off the TV. Oh, my God. And and I, you know, I loved his, his surrealistic approach to things. Yep. So from an, from an, yeah. So from an early age, the tape recorder was a, an instrument that helped really define my my own uh, comic uh, sensibilities. Obviously, that happened to you too. And well, I had to say one other thing. One of the skits when you were on Saturday Night Live uh -oh. that I loved the most, no, really, was your disc jockey. Oh. You were interviewing, right? Tell tell me about that, but that that setting up the records and t and listening to him, it was it, you know I've been there. Yeah, we was... we've we've all been there. That's what that that's where it came from. Howard Hessman oh. was the guest host that week. Uh, oh, good. And he was uh, so I wrote a sketch uh, with him in forum where uh, 
they were changing the time slot of uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, and he was supposedly doing a promotional tour to uh, announce that, and he ends up being booked on this morning drive radio show with an insufferable guy. And I think I had just been through or heard about, I think I'd actually experienced it, a guy in San Francisco named Ted Blue. And uh, (laughs) I was basically just... Uh, kind of did digesting and distilling what Ted Blue did for an hour, which is just not talk to me, but, you know, touch, touch base with me every few minutes. But he's got the commercials, he's got the traffic, he's got the weather, he's got the, you know, the time, the temperature and all that stuff. And so, you know, it's a guy who's who pretends to be listening, but he isn't, which is, of course, most interviewers. Um, and Howard was great in it as well. Um, yeah, but really you, you know, it's a, it's remarkable to hear you talk about that because yes, Ernie Kovacs and and Bob and Ray were touchstones of my childhood. Let me tell you one story because sure, this was like the the moment where I thought life can't possibly get better than this. I'm 18 years old. I get a summer job working at Young and Rubicam, the advertising agency in New York. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm a copywriter, and one of the accounts they give me to do is this local New York beer called Peels, P-I-E-L's. Oh, yes. Remember. And the, the spokespeople for Peels Beer were two cartoon characters, Bert and Harry Peel, the Peel brothers. That's right. Voiced by Bob and Ray. Bob and Ray. And so it is that at 18 years oh. old, I was in a recording studio producing a Bob and Ray session. Wow. <laughs> oh, Harry, that is so touching how can it get better than that i agree and the first time here's another odd parallel the first time any of my comic writing was ever performed on the air was by bob and ray oh my god because i was just a fan but i'd I'd send them funny postcards Uh. okay in one of them i said get well soon and they read my postcards (laughs) on the air Wow. So, you know, yeah. hey, are we brothers? What is this? What's going on here? It, it is amazing. Well, you, you do remember there was a guy from the Chicago Sun-Times who came out to California December of, I think, uh, a, a certain year. <laughs> Name, year not to be named now uh, to avoid embarrassment. But he came out to California, and he wrote a column about uh, this radio show that he'd heard and uh, the, he, he, so the first half of the column is about the Credibility Gap radio show. And then he says, and uh, not only that, but these guys have made a record. And he then reviews the Fire, Firesign Theater record. <laughs> he thought we were the same people. Well, in a way we were. Yeah, because we were four guys, we were four, each four guys, each on the radio. You guys were on KPFK and we were on KRLA. Yep. And uh, I just thought that, well, you know, if no better people to be conflated with than you guys. Oh, I agree. Likewise. Reverse Thank you. But, but we did. Actually, we were both on KRLA for a while at the same time, weren't we? Were you on KRLA? Uh, yeah, yeah. Bergman's Radio Free Eye Show uh, got on to KRL, KRLA. In fact, we were interviewing Dave Osman uh, for one of our shows, my partner yeah. of over 50 years yeah. in Fireside. And he he talked about the fact that what we were kicked off of KRLA. Everybody was furloughed because it turned out that the, the station was scamming people or something. Oh, it Some lost horrible... it. You mean, you mean when it lost its license? Yes, when it lost its license. Yeah. Oh, I can See? tell you what that was. <laughs> okay. Because, of course, I worked there. I got into the lore of the place. 
they had yeah. run a contest. Uh, a, a they were bringing in a new DJ, uh, right? Uh, Perry Allen. God, why do I remember that name? And uh, wow. he was, uh, and so they were uh, touting it with a big contest. Find Perry Allen. And they were giving clues all over Southern California as to where you could look <laughs> to find Perry Allen. And the problem was Perry Allen was in Buffalo. <laughs> so they were buffaloing their listeners. They, indeed they were. Yeah, literally. And they got caught. Wow. Yeah. I, you see, I always thought it was because Bergman, uh, you know, he would improvise the commercials that they were giving him because it was a commercial station. Mm -hmm. And he once got this commercial for a Toyota. And he improvised this line, put your hand up the skirt of a Toyota and you'll never let go. <laughs> right? Because that was their motto. You get your hands, hands on, on the Toyota, Toyota you'll never and, let go. And, and that's why I thought that we were fired wow. from that station, you know. But uh, it, it, radio is a heartbreak. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, uh, you really work hard. And what I admired about what you guys did was we'd do a show and, you know, it was basically Bergman driven because he ha he was a master rapper and, mm. and a con man. <laughs> and, and then you guys would be in the studio live right after us doing topical comedy based on the news yeah. and, and music as well. And that was I thought it was a great uh, uh time together actually it was it know. was amazing you know a, a, a work pace that only people in their 20s can keep up for any length of time i mean oh man don't you know it don't you know it i know we started uh taping our shows and uh we taped so close to air that uh i remember this particularly of the three o'clock in the afternoon show because it was after lunch uh we'd so that we'd we take it like an hour to at the Pasadena hamburger hamlet and uh and then you know a little time to uh, medicate self-medicate and get back to the station yeah. have, to, have to write that final show of the day so we were really close to the wire a lot and uh there was a 30 second usually a preparation h commercial that uh <laughs> came in the middle of the show and more than a few times we had done the first half of the show up to the commercial break where the production studio was on the second floor, and we would toss yeah. that reel of tape down to the uh, master control engineer and then go back in and, and try to finish the rest of the show before the Preparation H commercial had run in the show. Just, oh, my God. You know, and it, and it was oh. just the most frantic thing imaginable. What year was this? That was 68, 69. This was the infancy of FM Freeform. Oh, this, this was AM radio. We were on. Then when we got fired from there, we moved to the only other station in Pasadena, which was on FM. It was FM. And it was undiscovered and unmonetized and ended up being completely free in more ways than one. Yeah. And if you were willing to make it an avocation where you could, yeah. I mean, I did that for years. I'd have a day job, you know, doing something, but then to support the habit of going on radio and doing comedy. The addiction of radio. That's why I did a show on BAI for 10 years was because in return for not having pay, I was able to do whatever we wanted to do. Yeah, that is the deal. You're only free when you're free. Yes, and it was truly free. And I always said, you know, that radio was a better avocation than a vocation. <laughs> the internet is a, a sense of the same free form 
that we had. It doesn't have necessarily the immediacy and localization that radio offers, which is like priceless for, for live energy. But you're doing it now with harryshearer.com. How does it relate to you, mm-hmm. you know, the difference between then and now? Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the radio show has has been a podcast for quite a while now, but uh, and I, you know, I I've always, uh, as a, a person on the consuming side of the media, uh, been obsessed with being able to see and hear things that I like when I want to, mm-hmm. you know, like Phil recording Bob and Ray's to hear it later, yeah, or uh, when I got a satellite dish, being able to see Twin Peaks on a network feed two days before it went out on the air, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, I, everybody now has that flexibility. The uh, The entire audience now can uh, see and hear things when they want. And so I can't uh, uh, do anything but uh, say, see, 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 see how good it is? On the other hand, um, there is something about talking to a large group of people at the same time and knowing that they're hearing you uh, in the same in the same moment of space time energy, you know, where right, uh, right, and radio is still the king of that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a sort of a unfortunate example in my backyard because I used to share a, a radio home with Warren Olney, who did a great a daily uh, topical news discussion show on case I am not even going to mention the name of the station, <laughs> and uh, then. Shortly after they fired me, uh, they they told him, well, you know, you can still do a podcast of a topical news yeah. discussion show. Yeah. Uh, oh, geez. He's great at, but I, I you know, the thing about radio, uh, in addition to everything else, is that it becomes a habit. Yep. And you know that at the same time every day or the same time mm-hmm. every week, you, this is going to be there. And with a podcast, mm-hmm. if you don't check or you don't have notifications and who do, who doesn't have enough notifications... Uh, you just it it slips away, and the topicality uh, mm-hmm. slips away as well. So there's still things that only radio can accomplish. Yeah, you're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest Harry Shearer. We'll be right back. You know, Rex. Yeah, I think that's me. Well, I've been drinking this popular brand of beer pretty near hundred years. I'm still so depressed. Me too. I can't even line dance anymore. <laughs> you boys are down in the dumpsters because your adult beverage is only an alcoholic-enhanced dietary supplement. How <laughs> uh, come you're so peppy, right? Here, take a swig of what my grandkids put me on the last roundup. <laughs> uh, I'll try anything. Polar Pro. Uh-huh. Uh, I do feel a whole lot less suicidal. And I got the Texas Trots again. <laughs> Polar Pro, a prescription beer for older Americans with natural Alaskan bear urine and Prozac. Consult your doctor if you're pregnant, over 80, and operating heavy equipment. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet, and their special guest, comedian Harry Shearer. Fireside Theater had a very unique situation, Harry. Uh, we, After we did our first album, 
uh, in 66 or something, 67, uh, waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Uh, it didn't sell that many. I mean, good heavens, we were doing revolutionary long term, long form comedy. It was all totally surreal and crazy. And, and no audience, which comedy records had up to that time. Right. And 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 radio wasn't playing comedy records. And, no. And we were we didn't get on television. So uh, basically they were going to drop us at Columbia Records. But there was one guy who uh, stood up for us and he signed us to a spoken arts contract. Mm. Now, now, what that meant was that in exchange for a gasp, reduced royalty, we had unlimited free studio time. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my, my God. God. See, so so we were given this extraordinary opportunity to 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 do really whatever we wanted because we produced the albums primarily ourselves. Mm-hmm, of course. Uh, uh, wrote them ourselves and everything and that and then when fm radio started and people in, especially in college stations could play an entire side oh. of one of our albums yeah, right that was 26 heaven. minutes or something yeah. like that that is when it, we took it took off for yeah. us yeah very unique opportunity you know yeah it's it's very similar to what happened to uh, spinal tap which which uh, flunked out at the box office at, in its first theatrical run and then only because at Fortuitously, shortly afterwards, home video became a thing. Uh, did, did the movie, you know, climb back out of obscurity? Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, unusual things have to take unusual paths. I guess is the lesson there. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, Spinal Tap was was really, I think, the first uh, mockumentary, mm-hmm. uh, right? And 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 everybody, <laughs> everybody in it. I mean, I'm laughing just thinking of various scenes because again when when a thing attains a cult status it it, it becomes part of your consciousness mm-hmm. right like it or not yeah and 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 so everything that you guys did became a model for uh, future adventures it kind of it it inspired people to be able to go in those directions you know, just like Firesign was yeah. able to do. Well, Ricky Gervais uh, came up to Chris and me at one point and said that uh, the whole premise for The Office was based on him having watched Spinal Tap. Now, the interesting thing about that is we, uh, Chris and I, I think, uh, both assumed that uh, among the things that he meant by that was that The Office was improvised because it sure looked like it was. He and Stephen wrote every word. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, it is amazing and and beautifully beautifully executed, really. Yeah, no kidding. I want to ask you a question about your voices. Mm-hmm. Okay, now now obviously you've had an enormous success uh, for a long time now, and probably unexpectedly with The Simpsons, right? Well, you and- know, to, uh, just let me interject for a moment. People would always ask, you know, uh, when I was doing interviews about the show uh, early on, uh, how long do you think the show will last? And I got into the habit of saying, uh, I think it'll be on the air until Fox finds another comedy hit at eight. So in a way, I was very prescient because they never have. Uh, Talking about The the Simpsons, Mm -hmm. the fact that that core group has been together for such a long time is also, I think, a very unique factor, you know, in its success and also in uh, uh, an unusual opportunity for all of you guys to grow 
in your roles. It's very unique that, you know, I did the Rugrats for 14 years, mm. Howard on the Rugrats, and that was pretty good. But uh, nothing like, how many years has it been on the air now, Harry? Uh, it's, uh, the season that's running right now on television is 31, and we're, we're working on 32 right now. Wow. That's astonishing. Yeah. That goes back to um, when we first met, uh, when we were working on Heat, I started working with both of you separately. We did topical shows, and we did a show on family dynamics. Someone had sent us a VHS screener of a full-length uh, iteration of what was on the Tracy Ullman show, The Simpsons. Yeah. And, mm. and I called uh, Matt Groening, who was working out of a trailer on the Fox lot, Mm-hmm. And I asked him, you know, if he would be interested in doing a segment with us about family dynamics, given the Simpsons launch, which was still hadn't happened. And he said, sure. He said, I'm going home, though. I think he's from Washington State. Uh, and he said, I'm going home for the weekend. They're naming some hospital wing after me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he said, would you mind if we do it from like my family's house, my rumpus room? I said, well, sure. That's perfect. <laughs> he said, would you mind calling my dad and making sure it's all good? I said, sure. And uh, his name is Homer. I said, Homer. Mm-hmm. I said, Marge, because that's my mom. <laughs> I said, huh. Lisa, my sister. And I said, well, who's Bart? He said, well, Bart's me. It's sort of an acronym for brat. <laughs> I called Homer and he's hello. And I said, this is Homer. He goes, yeah, but I'm not like him. He <laughs> <laughs> was very funny. And Marge was delightful, too. And um, we ended up doing the show from the Rumpus Room. Wow. It was just an amazing thing. And then it just it, it never ended. But you know what, is, what has ended? Nobody has Rumpus Rooms anymore. Oh, <laughs> that's right. You have, you have uh, what they call them, home theaters. Well, and you have man caves. Of course. Right. Now, do you have some, some new personal projects that you're working on? Any, any more films or records or anything? I have a film which has uh, been approaching the pre-production stage for a millennium now, yeah. but was supposed to start shooting in uh, June or July of this year, uh, but that's on hold for the obvious reason. Sure. Not on hold is I realized about uh, two and a half months ago that uh, I had been writing uh, and doing what or basically demo versions of uh, a bunch of songs in the voice of Donald Trump. And I thought, I've got enough for a record. This is an election year. Oh, yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah. I'm working on that. I heard the show the week before last. And was that you doing Trump? Is that your Trump? So we'll see. But uh, it's going to be incredible. That's my feeling. Dr. Fauci, I know Tony has other uh, more scientific feelings, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, next question. No, no, not you. You're nasty. Excuse me. You're very nasty, and your paper is... Oh, no, I'm sorry. You're one of us. Go ahead. Mr. Yeah. President, you may, in fact, uh, think this is a nasty question. I knew it. I knew uh, it. But it really isn't, sir. I think a lot of people may be uh, wondering about this. Now, that's interesting, because uh, when you mention a lot of people, I know a lot of people, and they're very impressed with what we, and I mean all these extremely talented people up here are accomplishing, especially the ones who are naughty. But go ahead. You, you've said many times, sir, that in this, at this podium that nobody could have seen something like this coming. Uh, yet there was a report on your desk when you came into office warning about a possible pandemic. And well, there was a, a simulation at John Hopkins last October of a serious pandemic. So, okay, I, I think, was right. Again, very nasty question. 
He didn't even finish asking it, but just the first part was so nasty. But Mr. President, if you would... I'll tell you what I had in case you haven't been paying attention the last couple of years, which knowing your reporting is so very, very possible. And maybe you forgot. Who knows? We'll see. But I had Democrats and their friends right here in this room pushing one hoax after another. Somehow I'm supposed to see these old reports and something at Johns Hopkins, and I mean, I'm sure they're doing terrific work, very incredible people down there, but I'm supposed to stop keeping very close watch of the coverage of the hoaxes? Then I get criticized from the other side, right? Well, sir, it's not exactly criticism. Quiet, quiet. Excuse me, excuse me. Did, Did you even get the temperature test? I don't think so. Let's get him out before he infects the rest of us. Very dangerous. Yes, you. The unfair one. Thank you, Mr. President. Not you. The other unfair one behind you. Thank you, Mr. President. Sir, do you think it's right to be constantly criticizing uh, uh, criticizing us at these pressers while there's a national emergency going on? That's a nice question. I've never heard that one before. And when you say constant criticism, I have to say... I know what you're talking about, even though I may not, because nobody gets more constant criticism than me, and a lot of it from the very same people who've been kicked out of this room. But, Mr. President, it's our job. Excuse me, excuse me. Many people ask me why I put up with it, and I say, I don't know. All I do is good things, and then uh, whether it's this hoax or that hoax, or like in this case, a total non-hoax, which we could have known sooner, even sooner, thanks to the Chinese. I get the same people just trying to get partisan advantage out of trying to to tear down your favorite president. Not yours, I know, but uh, maybe soon, even you. I I have to go negotiate uh, a new deal about my hotels. I mean, my kids run them, but in a way, they're still mine, the hotels. And also, in a very real sense, my kids, too. So uh, Mike is going to take over after a brief pause. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Harry, that's the the scariest and best Trump I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. And, and, you know, my wife, Melinda, uh, after Mm -hmm. we both listened to it, I said, man, that's really a great uh, impersonation of uh of trump and melinda said it's the writing you captured (laughs) you you captured that madman so extremely well thank you i you know i think that's i think the first character that i really thought uh i have to capture this person's unique way of talking and and behind that thinking was a local character in los angeles uh by the name of Mr. Blackwell. I don't know if you remember him. Mm-hmm. He used to do the, he was famous nationally just for every year he'd pop up and do the 10, world, uh, 10 worst dressed women list. Um, but he had a radio show here in Los Angeles on uh, a Glendale station um, that's now a right wing talk station, but at that time didn't know what it was, so it had room for this guy. And he uh, operated from an open air studio down in a downtown office building. And he had this voice, and I oh I know I, I know where I discovered him. I was in a poke, poking through an old record bin in a record store. Remember those? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He because he was a fashion designer of a sort, and he did a record of his show when as you know when he'd show his fashions. He had a little shtick that he did, 
And it was just so crazy. And then I found out that one of the guys at KRLA had produced it. So, and and I, oh, well, this is an interesting story. Oh, yeah. But I, it was the first guy that I found, I can't write him. I have to improvise him because mm-hmm. it's such a f- weird, it's not a flow of thought. It's a, 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 a frequently self-interrupting torrent of thought. <laughs> or a series of outbursts. Yeah, and, and so as a writer, you can't quite make those turns as fast uh, as if it's just flowing out of your mouth. Um, and um, so, but I've, I've learned to write Trump, uh, but I think based on that kind of experience of just uh, following, because writing, you know, it, the hardest thing to write is the disorganized nature of most human conversation. I mean, that's, Beckett, that's correct. That's right. You know, got to it and, and some, a few others have gotten to it, but uh, you know, there's, the temptation when you're writing is to be writerly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Harry, on that uh, bit personifies all your produced pieces where you're, you're throwing voices. You have uh, lots of your stuff going on in the background. It's timed. It seems to be over. I've always just wondered from a radio nerd perspective, how do you produce something like the Trump conference where you're doing all of that stuff? I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, Ted, I've told exactly one person ever um, how that how that works um god rest his soul <laughs> god, yeah uh and and i thoughts and prayers to his uh, wife and family it was albert brooks and i was producing his second record um and uh for reasons that don't need to be explained here he was he he was in need of being able to do something like that and i just said well look here's here's how that works and it, I, I started it uh, in, in an analog way uh, when we were still using tape and uh, grease pencils and razor blades. Mm-hmm. Not on our wrists uh, to edit the tape. No, no, no. no. And, uh, and it, it, it took me a while to be able to adapt it to the, the, the digital realm. And uh, I was late to the digital realm because of that. I just said to a guy who had brought me a, a machine that I tried doing that on, I said, when you, when you bring me something that I have to push as few buttons as I do in the analog space to do this, I'll get that. Because <laughs> it was like the digital thing at that time was four, four more buttons, which slows down the, the workflow. Um, but yeah, I, uh, aside from that, and, and uh, you know, Albert's out of the business now, apparently, but I've uh, n- never told anybody because it's just, uh, I thought, it's... It's your secret sauce. So- Harry, it's your secret sauce. The best thing I can tell you about it is I needed a way to do what actors do, which is everything they say is in reaction to what they've just seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, you know, for, for Firesign, of course, uh, there were four of us, uh, and you you know that dialectic as well as anybody oh, yeah. would, right? And so, yeah. uh, but we still created so many characters that yes. we, we'd have to talk over ourselves, talk to ourselves, and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And, and we did it, same thing, digitally, uh, not digitally, excuse me, but but in an analog form. Analogically. Uh, and analogically. Someone who we all know, Phil Hendry, we had him on the show recently, and he can do it live. Live. It's astounding. Uh, uh, my friend Meryl Marco told me about Phil uh, when he was on KFI uh, in what I think was his, his amazing glory period uh, at the turn yeah. of the century. And uh, I said, no, he's not. That's not all him. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Me with the good ears, right? And yeah. she, she said, so I got in touch with Phil. He said he was a fan. I said, well, uh, the price of your being a fan of mine is you have to 
let me come watch you do your show. Ah. And he did. And it, it, it was, I don't know if you ever saw it. it uh, you can see what he does on YouTube. He posts now videos of him doing it. That is an astonishing thing that he does. And uh, when he did it for three hours a night, every night. He does a show every day, doesn't he? Mm. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. And great, and great characters. I mean, they really are different people and calling in. And uh, he reminds me in a way of, um, and Phil, I don't know uh, if, if either of you remember, uh, I was listening to these guys uh, coming down from San Francisco on a clear channel station, KGO, Coil and Sharp. Did you ever hear them? No. Uh-uh. No. Mal Sharp just passed away. They, they were on every night. And they went out on the street uh, with different propositions that, for people to consider. Oh. Mal was sort of the amiable uh, host, and Coyle was this uh, fast-talking pitch man. And they, they just tried to convince people to do things that were preposterous, but they wanted to push it to see where someone would actually say no. You know, So they kept, kept pushing it and making it more extreme. And, and I, I bring them up because Phil... Uh, on the classic shows that I remember, would very often use the same technique. A guy would start out being kind of an ass. Mm-hmm. Yep. And by the end of the hour, people were screaming into their phones at him because, <laughs> yes, and yes. Phil would just push it and push it and push it farther. Oh yeah. Yep. And it's a great comic technique if you can stand the the abuse. He's still doing it. It's uh, it's it's remarkable. While we're on voices, I read that you uh, met Mel Blanc, and he was the voice of all the Looney Tune characters in Bugs Bunny, and in a way that he, in a way, mentored you or influenced you in some way. He never mentored me. He never said, "Sit down, kid. I'm going to teach you how to do Porky." Um, mm-hmm. But we were both working on the Jack Benny program. He was uh, the voice of a lot of characters in the yep. Jack Benny program. He was also the man who made the sound of Jack Benny's old car, the Maxwell. Can you remember the day you bought your first automobile? I can remember driving mine home, for I had my friend Mel Blank with me. Mel and I still work together, and I still have the Maxwell. Oh. That wasn't the sound effects guy. That was Mel with his <laughs> all of that. <laughs> but so I knew him for seven or eight years while I was working on the Jack Benny program. He had a son uh, my age. Yes, Noel. Yeah. And um, whatever happened between us in terms of he was a voice guy and now I'm a voice guy, I think was more osmosis than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. It, it was more um, osmosis than hypnosis. Let's put it that way. While we're on voices, I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit to uh, The Simpsons, and because you do so many characters on The Simpsons that people have grown up with now. Did these characters, I'm sure they were written and created by writers, but it, it, how did you uh, embrace the roles and develop the characters with the writers and create the voices, or was it just sort of, again, an osmosis natural thing? If you know anything about television, uh, writers and actors don't work together in television. <laughs> That's right. And so I'd get a script. We'd all get scripts, especially in the early part where the, we never even saw drawings at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We started recording while the show was still being designed and drawn. Uh, so what you saw on a script was like a one-line description, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if that. If that. And, and so it was um, nothing analytical. I, you know, I think, Phil, you know uh, that... Being a smart person, the first job when you're doing 
something creative is turning the thinking part off. You know, yeah, absolutely, that's right. You know, you have to you have to free yourself, and and thinking is not a freeing mechanism. So uh, I would just take a, a an intuitive leap. You know, and mm-hmm. I guess he sounds like this. And if uh, if they don't like that, I'll stop that. And if they don't stop it, I'll keep doing I'll keep doing it. It was really that that uh, kind of intuitive and uh, uh, just throw something up there. The the element of improvisation, uh, you have to be kind of trained in it. You were very lucky because you you were doing like the Jack Benny show as a child actor. Did you transition into the television? Yep. You did? Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes, I transitioned with Mr. Benny. He he took me along to TV. And you may recall that CBS was was a, a laggard in getting into color television because NBC owned the system uh, of color television that the FCC had approved, and NBC was owned by RCA. Uh-huh. And so CBS's position is, we're not going to help you sell your color TVs. You do it. So <laughs> they finally got dragged along. And so I was on the first Jack Benny show that was shot in color. And it, so they wrote an episode to show that off. Jack Benny takes the Beverly Hills Beavers to the carnival, to the circus, so you could have a lot of color in it. And the lights were fiendishly hot to get color. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so very, very arduous thing, but you know, you did it because it it was a, it was a a landmark. And of course, when it goes into the syndication package, uh, three quarters of the shows were black and white. So they just black and whited them all. (laughs) So if you see this, really, oh my gosh, if you see the first Jack Benny show shot in color, you see it in black and white. Wow. (laughs) Oh, that's really wonderful. Yeah. So TV can be a heartbreak too. (laughs) And radio can be more colorful than television. That's right. Well, listen, Harry, this has been really a wonderful catch-up. Well, Harry, thank you for uh, joining us, and good luck in your bunker. And Thank you. And uh, don't touch your faces. No. No, that's no. right. And thanks for your well, persistence, Ted. Thanks, Harry. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, what a treat to have Harry Shear with us. Well, you know, Harry is another one of those extraordinary people who, uh, with whom we've maintained not only a professional relationship, but a personal relationship. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes the, the Boomer show unique from other shows that you listen to, because we've really been through a lot together and, and mm-hmm. you know, and have grown older and wiser or sillier and stupider together and it makes for a particular kind of a joyful bond when we have a chance to talk to to somebody uh with with the immense talent that harry has and being perhaps the hardest working man in show business you know there are some upsides to the uh shutdown and (laughs) being in our bunkers right it's a wonderful people we're able to find and talk to now and let's just continue Absolutely. And and on the other side, dear friends, let's hope we can all get together in person and uh, uh, open a new restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Stay healthy, stay intact, be happy, read, enjoy the clear air, and we will be back for another episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet with special guest Harry Shearer. The Anthropod, Barks, and Trump This Week were written and produced by Harry Shearer. Polar Pro was written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Maxwell was performed by Jack Benny and Mel Blanc. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm A. Ernest Guy. 
Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay. Hello, Seekers. If you like what you just heard, share it with your friends. If you still have any. And here's a great gift idea. Phil? Thanks, Ted. Uh, and, and dear friends, if you can afford a couple of bucks from the money you used to pay for gas, please go to our dedicated page at sexyboomershow.com and contribute by clicking on the PayPal button. And you don't even have to wear a mask. Uh, unless, Ted, it's an anonymous donation. You see, our nefarious plan is to build enough subscribers to earn sponsor support so we can send your money back. Yes, send your money back. Not. And if you need any more of the Sexy Boomer Show to survive this historic time hunkered in your bunkers, please subscribe to our podcast by clicking on the subscribe button on this page. You know, every subscription brings us closer to success and forces us to record another silly show. You can follow our Sexy Boomer Show on In Your Facebook to join the conversation and even add comments at a safe distance just search sexy boomer show on facebook and remember now more than never your vote counts unless we don't count them you can always reach phil and me personally by email at info at that's right ted we check our junk mail every day and you can check our website at sexyboomershow.com to learn more and find past podcasts and all sorts of little goodies or if you're a twitwit track us on twitter for upcoming show announcements and special messages at boomer sexy we're everywhere like the virus but we promise not to kill you so until we meet again we're going back to the shadows again so long little buddies where the vegetables are green and you can pee into the stream and that's important we're going back to the shadows again mm-hmm.